Welcome to the Her Story Matters podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Allen, and I cannot wait for you to hear this episode. Thanks for tuning in. So excited to chat with you again. I think I've said that like five times now. Um, so just let's start off, if you wouldn't mind just giving a brief intro of yourself and um, how you have gotten to this point in your career. Yeah, definitely. So, well, first of all, thanks for having me on your podcast. Um, yeah. So my name is Margaret Melville, and I'm the founder of Lassa Health. I, I like to start with my story. So for a decade, I experienced debilitating chronic pelvic pain. I ended up going to 25 doctors over those 10 years, really just bouncing around between specialists in and out of the ER, looking for answers. But I was told again and again that I was fine. And as time went on, my symptoms got worse and I was just so frustrated and really just kept thinking like, how can I start to get better when no one even believes that I'm sick? Um, mm -hmm. Eventually, long story short, I was diagnosed with endometriosis and celiac disease. Um, and that really inspired me to start Lassa Health from my own experiences, but also because everyone I talk to has their own story, whether that's their personal story or that's a family member or friend who has a similar story. It's so common for patients who have nonspecific symptoms, especially women, to have their symptoms dismissed and ignored, resulting in this long, long saga to diagnosis. Um, so that's why I built Lassa Health. What we are, we're an end-to-end -end patient engagement platform with embedded clinical decision support. And really it optimizes the way that patients interact with their healthcare providers, helping to bridge the gap of communication and trust that can exist between these two parties. So our software integrates into clinical, clinical workflows. We screen patients for commonly overlooked conditions, improve that patient-provider communication, and then also provide patients with extensive at-home care. So we're starting initially with chronic pelvic pain, which impacts about 25% of women, but we plan to expand from there to other conditions that are commonly overlooked. Wow, that is so amazing. And to your point, so needed. Um, I mean, even myself, I have an experience with being a patient and no doctor knowing what's going on with me. Luckily, it resolved. Um, but I had a fever of unknown origin for 10 days, like um, up to 104, over 104, in and out of the ER, you know, and that was only 10 days, but like incredibly scary um, to not know what's going on with you. And then adding in that layer of feeling like someone doesn't believe you is very scary also. Yeah. Um, so this is incredibly needed, especially starting out in women's healthcare. I mean, we're seeing a huge revolution right now, I feel like, an explosion in women's healthcare. I was just the other day I saw on LinkedIn uh, an infographic that was put out by SVB that showed the different amounts of venture capital that have been invested in women's health since 2018. And Platform was, I believe, the only one that was over a billion. So um, really interesting. And I love your plans to eventually scale um, to other other conditions. So can you just, because I, again, my specialty is in geriatrics. So I know a little bit about women's health, um, but I, I am certainly not an expert. And just for the listeners, a diagnosis of endometriosis, I'm assuming is a clinical diagnosis, not um, something that you can see on a scan, et cetera. So could you just walk us through what that process and journey looks like for a patient? Yeah, definitely. So endometriosis, it's a chronic inflammatory disorder where tissue essentially grows in places where it shouldn't. It's commonly mis mis 
there's a misconception that it's just painful periods, but it's really can be so much more than that because the tissue can grow on your bowels. It can grow on your on your lungs. It can grow in your liver, your appendix. It can really grow anywhere. And so depending on where the lesions are growing and what type they are, the symptoms can really vary for each patient. Um, so, so typically the diagnosis process can be difficult because you'll come in with really a lot of different symptoms depending on the patient and these symptoms often cycle. So depending on your menstrual cycle, they'll be worse at some times and better at other times. So it can be really confusing for a doctor to understand really what the cause is. And it mm -hmm. can be very similar to, uh, you know, a dozen of other conditions like IBS or fibroids or PCOS um, mm -hmm. with so much overlap, it can be a struggle to diagnose. Endometrius is actually, um, it can be, it can be a clinical diagnosis, but um, it, you can be definitive as well because with surgery, you're able to take biopsies of the actual lesions and test them and, and definitively say whether or not it's endometriosis. So with my example, um, nothing showed up in ultrasounds, nothing showed up in blood work. There was no clinical signs of endometriosis. And but as I heard patient stories and heard story after story that sounded just like mine, I was I was pretty convinced that it was endometriosis. But I would go to doctors and say, hey, I think it's endometriosis. Like, what can we do about this? And they would say, no, that's super rare. Like, it's probably not that. Like, no, let's pursue other things. Uh, and finally, I found a specialist who believed it was endometriosis and, and had a surgery to treat it. And it was super scary going into surgery when there were literally no clinical signs mm -hmm. that it was endometriosis, but that's common. You kind of go into the surgery almost blind just based on the symptoms and they found lots of endometriosis and were able to excise it and I'm feeling a lot better already. So that, that was my experience. That's amazing. Um, I, and, and I'm, I'm just, I have so many thoughts right now and I have chills. Um, so in terms of your ER visits, I used to be an ER nurse. And so I'm sure once there was, once they had ruled out that there was a true emergency, like your pain was then either disregarded or um, do you feel like there was a huge gap in terms of the pain management? And then the other side of it is the mental health aspect of, of all of this. Yeah. Great questions. So the ER visits, like you said, um, you know, the, the times that I did go to the ER, it's because, because like I had high fevers because the pain had lasted for weeks and weeks because I, I couldn't eat and was nauseous and it had gotten so bad, you know, um, I think it's normal for a patient to wonder like, is my appendix rupturing? Like, is something more serious mm -hmm. happening? Um, and when I'd go to the ER, like you said, they did rule out, make sure it wasn't my appendix. It wasn't you know, some, some emergent thing that I was dying from and usually give me a prescription for ibuprofen and send me home. So I, I got oh. ibuprofen three times from the emergency room. And, you know, it, it was really frustrating as a patient to say, I'm in so much pain. I drag myself to the ER and have to sit in this waiting room for like three hours and then sit in this bed and do all these tests. And then ultimately I'm sent home with, with exactly what I had when I came in, which was uh, ibuprofen. And that really became what I leaned on to for years was just daily ibuprofen, constantly taking ibuprofen just to get through the day. Yeah. Wow. I Similar but different. I had the Paragard IUD for almost 10 years. 
And I specifically chose that because it was non-hormonal and I had been on birth control for years prior to that and wanted to, I feel like playing, like you're sort of playing this game of like, how do I reduce my risk of this cancer and this cancer also not have a baby? Like, it's just a little ridiculous when you get older and look back on some of this. Um, and I, I was very young when I got it. And so relatively, and you know, you don't ask a lot of questions and in hindsight, now that I have that removed, I had debilitating pain from my cramps as a direct result of the size of the IUD for the entire 10 years. And I've probably taken enough ibuprofen to last me a lifetime. And the long-term risks of that really scare me now as well. Um, And so I think there's a huge opportunity and, and I'm a healthcare provider. (laughs) So I think there's, there's clearly a huge gap in um, how we're caring for patients and especially how we are connecting with women and really getting a true grasp on what they're going through and supporting them. Um, I have one more question related to the medical aspect of endometriosis um, too, actually, and it's okay if you don't know. I'm just curious off the top of your head, what is the true incidence of endometriosis post-biopsy? And then there's probably an estimate of how many actually have it who never get to that point, especially like uninsured. And then second, I'm curious, are there long-term effects, health effects of not being diagnosed and having this tissue growing in other places that it's not supposed to be? Yeah, really great question. So most of the research shows it's around 10 or 11% of people assigned female at birth that have endometriosis. Um, and, and that's from studies uh, actually with, with fetuses. So um, endometriosis is, is found in, in fetuses. They, they think it's the cause is not completely known, but something genetic, something in the development creates these lesions. But then essentially what happens is as you grow older and produce more estrogen, it grows and it spreads and it becomes worse and worse. And so that's that's the risk of not treating it is because it, it does progress and it can ultimately cause you to lose organs, you to use your ovaries, you lose your appendix, lose your uterus, depending on where it's growing, have to have bowel resections, um, as well as, you know, it progresses through stages. So, you know, stage four is sometimes called like frozen pelvis syndrome because your organs can essentially fuse together. And so it makes it extremely painful, really hard to move and really difficult to treat. So um, it's much easier to to treat, to, to cut out those lesions when they are smaller and when it hasn't progressed quite as far. Um, but with really severe cases, it can be completely debilitating and almost impossible to 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 treat. Mm-hmm. Is the treatment primarily just removal? And then what's the monitoring? Do you get PET scans or full body scans every so often? Yeah, a lot of improvement needs to happen in the space. So <laughs> yeah. the conservative approach is typically contraception, um, especially hormonal that will suppress periods because that can reduce the symptoms and um, because mm-hmm. pain tends to be worse during your periods. And it we have done so few studies on endometriosis. Um, we can't really even say if, if the hormonal contraception helps to reduce the spread. Um, because all of the studies have been mostly done on, on mice and not using the right type of tissue. So there's, there's severe flaws in the type of research we're doing with endometriosis and the quantity and the quality of those studies. So we know so mm-hmm. little about the disease. Um, 
surgery is is typically uh, is a common approach. Um, the, the important thing to note is that there are two types. So one is excision, where you actually cut out the lesion. The other one's called ablation, where you burn the lesion. With ablation, it usually comes back in about three to six months. And so patients will be going in year after year after year for surgery just to have it come back. Excision tends to have reduced rates of reoccurrence, though it can still come back and often does. So um, that's the current state. We have so much need for more non-invasive diagnostic tools, for non-invasive yeah. treatment options, and lots of great people working on that space. Yeah, absolutely. Because I'm just thinking about then you have complications from having all of these surgeries. Not all of them are going to go according to plan. Multiple, yes. especially abdominal surgeries, we know are linked to really poor outcomes downstream. So, okay, let's shift gears. Um, thank you for all of that. Um, so let's talk about AI and machine learning now. So curious your take on what are some ways that just right off the bat, we can be using uh, this new technology to improve women's health. Great question. So first of all, I mean, AI machine learning alone does does nothing to improve women's health. It's really in the implementation and how it integrates into patients' lives, into the clinical workflow, that that's what can create an impact. And there's so many areas I think it, it can be used in the diagnosis, it can be used in access to education. Um, and what we're really focused on is using AI and machine learning to support clinicians and clinical decision support. So um, with clinicians having this pressure of a very short appointment time and seeing back-to-back -back patients, it can be really, really difficult for them to get a thorough patient history with patients who have these confusing nonspecific symptoms. And so this results in the physician often punting the patient off to a specialist or um, you know, not, not doing a thorough history because they, they don't have the time. So that's mm -hmm. where we're using our tool is using AI tools to help take that patient history to help synthesize and process this massive amount of complex data and look for patterns that we can then share with the clinician to point them in the right direction. So I always like to think of it like, like a, you know, like Google maps or any, any driving app, um, you, you, you know, we're not driving the car, right? You, but mm -hmm. the Google Maps can really help you get to where you go, point you in the right direction, give you advice about what road to take. And that's what we're doing for physicians. So we're not diagnosing, but we're screening and, and giving them recommendations about, hey, here's some tests to run. Here's some possible things that might be. Here's some questions to ask. Here's some things to consider so we can help physicians and support them in getting, getting the patient to the diagnosis that they really deserve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, um, so I took an elective on this over January term at Cornell and not only in healthcare, but as we're learning just broadly, there is a gap in the research that we have for women in general, especially dealing with endometriosis. We've already identified there's a gap there. So some of, I mean, that's an immediate challenge, uh, for you as a founder. Um, my hope and thought logically is that as uh, tools like this are implemented and we get more feedback, then we can, the, the data almost learns from itself. Um, and so just curious if you have anything to add there. Um, I think you've sort of already hit it, but. Yeah. Yeah. I think the data piece is really important because so essentially what we have right now, women's health has been over underlooked 
overlooked and underdiagnosed for years. And so you have a bad data set. So when you train a machine learning model on a good data set, it's easy. But the current standard of care is 10 years to diagnosis for endometriosis. What happened to me, that is standard. That is not worst case scenario. That's just normal. That's just the standard way wow. to get diagnosed. And so when you train a model off of clinical practice, when clinical practice is poor, then all you can do is replicate what the clinician's currently doing. And so, like you're saying, we need to build new data sets. We need to build out data sets that will help improve the time to diagnosis and help catch things that are currently being overlooked by our medical system. And that takes a lot of time and, and really thoughtful approach to how you collect data. So much of the data mm -hmm. available might be not representative of real women, right? It, it might be a group of super young, healthy college students or mice that are men, <laughs> male mice, or it could be a really small sample size or you know, not, not diverse in terms of the representation of the data. So um, really the better the data set is and the cleaner that data is and the more representative that data is, the, the more advanced our models can, can become. And to the extent that you can share with me, I'm just curious, what are your requirements of what data sets you're integrating into this? Or is your vision that you're just using your own data that's collected? Um, mm -hmm. Great question. Platform? So predominantly it's our own data right now. We are working on integrating with electronic health records and that would bring in additional data set. Um, and essentially what we're doing is, is building it out in phases. So as we collect more data and as we reach different accuracies, we'll be able to expand. So our initial product, we're screening for 15 conditions that cause chronic pelvic pain, but you know we're not gonna release them all at once, right? As we collect data and, and hit the accuracy targets we're working towards, we'll add more and more conditions to, to the, the product we're actually selling to clinics. Okay, and when did you found LASA? I started it uh, during my MBA, uh, so started oh. it January 2022, right when I got graduated. Okay. And your founding team, is it just you or do you have co-founders? Yeah. So my co-founder, his name's Chris Fortuna. He He's an AI machine learning guru. Uh, so his background, was... he worked at Owlet Baby Care. That's a really cool predictive health analytics company and in, in the newborn space. Um, and he's actually my husband. So I oh. highly recommend <laughs> marrying a software developer because it's very hard to find a CTO in the women's health space or really in any area. So that's my advice for startup founders. I was, I was literally gearing up to ask you for the Embas listening, how did you get connected to that person? <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh, that's too good. Um, love that. So, and then how big is your team now? Yeah, great question. Uh, it ebbs and flows. So oftentimes you'll see startups, you have a founding team and then you'll bring on contractors. So as we have a different project or, you know, a different need, um, we'll bring mm -hmm. on contractors, advisors. We're hiring our, our a second full-time developer right now. So that job hosting is open, at least as, as of recording. Um, okay. And uh, in the next couple of months, we'll also bring on an additional person on the business side for uh, to help support with some of these new contracts we're working on with clinics. Very exciting. And I, I'm going totally off script here. So just because you're dealing with actual patients, can you walk me through at what point um, and what body do you need approval from to start operating in, in a medical field? Great question. Um, <laughs> this is such an emerging space. So um, 
the area we fall into, like I mentioned, is clinical decision support. And the FDA has released a couple rulings about about what's defined as um, clinical decision support that counts as a medical device and what doesn't count as a medical device. And and we're right now uh, with the current rulings where we're not considered a medical device, so we don't have to you know, do a clinical study. And that's because we're not a diagnostic, right? We're a screening tool that helps provide recommendations for the physician, but ultimately it's the physician that is going to be running the follow-ups and making that decision about if they should, if they want to give a diagnosis. Um, so if we were providing a diagnosis, that definitely would need to go through the FDA. Um, yep. The the other things that are relevant is is HIPAA, so data security and privacy, and making sure that's that's in compliance, so we can keep patients' data safe and secure. Um, and then uh, and then whatever hospitals we work with or clinics we work with often have their own data security policies or guidelines that they want us to follow. Okay, and from a business perspective, um, your value proposition in getting these contracts because you and I both care about patients. We care about women. We want to make the world a better place with all this knowledge that we've garnered in our MBAs. Um, but how does it help the health systems? I'm assuming that you're partnering with to identify these patients early. Yeah. Great question. So the healthcare system, the incentives are very, very complex. And so it really depends on who you're talking to. So if you're talking to a small private practice, they might be trying to differentiate themselves by having this really unique patient experience or a pelvic pain clinic or an endometriosis surgeon that's really trying to set themselves apart, be more tech savvy, provide better patient experience and patient support. Um, a large hospital is going to have different incentives. So they might have some value-based contracts where they're actually taking on some of the, the risk and, mm-hmm. um, you know, wanting to, wanting to reduce the ER admissions and reduce the bouncing around between specialists by getting people a diagnosis faster. And, and it can also just be as simple as, as reputation, right? Um, hospitals want to have a good reputation of being a place where patients can come and get a diagnosis and have their symptoms taken seriously. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of it becomes about patients demanding higher care, right? Helping patients have this vision for the standard of care is not okay and not acceptable. And we shouldn't accept providers who who are dismissing, ignoring you. And um, that creates this, this movement where um, then providers will start looking for more tools and looking for how we can change the way we're doing things so that patients have better experiences. The doctor that you ultimately found your way to who helped you, how did you find them? And are you doing anything? You're, you're partnering with health systems at this stage, but is there um, something that you're working on to get the word out about your tool so that then patients can find you? Like if I saw this on Instagram because I had been Googling pelvic pain and then I can search and find a doctor that I ask, do you use this tool? Yep. Yeah, exactly. So as we are implemented in more clinics, we'll have it available on our website for patients who, who want to go to a provider who's using our platform because they want to they want to know that wherever they go is going to take them seriously and be a safe space for them. So we can help improve that as well as referrals. So um, oftentimes it's not going to just be one doctor, right? You might have your your primary care managed by by one 
OBGYN or PA or NP and then have a surgery by somebody else and have pelvic floor therapy by somebody else and um, and and really connecting all these parties together. So that's that's the vision for our platform is is being this the spot to help manage all of that data and connect all of the, the providers in one centralized platform. Yeah, and my my mind is just churning right now. <laughs> like, um, especially, I'm just thinking of all the the uninsured, low income patients that going through the process of uh, getting to a specialist, um, or even affording to pay that copay, and then for um, other treatments, um, like you mentioned, pelvic floor therapy. I'm sure that's not covered 100% in most cases. There's there are just so many opportunities here, and you really are doing incredible work. Um, so going back to the questions, what advice would you give to other women who may be listening and are pursuing an MBA or thinking about pursuing an MBA and eventually wanting to found a company as you have? Great question. Um, so this is my second startup and both companies I started when I was in school. And I'm really of the belief that being in school is a really great time to start a company. When you're working full time, you're so busy and you're it's hard to really have the mental space to to be working on a, a startup and, and ideating in that space. But uh, MBA or any other program is, is really a great place to do that because you're taking these classes, you're meeting cool people from different backgrounds, and and you can use that to ideate, to play around with ideas, to get feedback, talk to your professors, talk to your classmates. Um, most schools will have pitch competitions and boot camps and great programs to help you really vet out, is this a good idea or not? And um, so that's what I did during my MBA. I, I came into it knowing I wanted to start a company. I didn't know what company I wanted to start. I was playing around with some ideas. I did some boot camps, pitch competitions, all that, and and refined this idea so that by the time I graduated, I was ready to, you know, to go full on, incorporate the company and um, and start building. And do you mind telling me the story of your first company that you founded? Sure. Um, so that was during my undergrad and it was a medical device company. So we developed a low cost neonatal ventilator for low and middle income countries, kind of around this idea that um, infant mortality rates are, are, are really high in a lot of the world. And a lot of that is lack of access to equipment. Most medical equipment is designed for America, Europe, you know, well, mm -hmm. well funded markets and hospitals and those equipment doesn't always work well in other situations. So for example, places where there's inconsistent power in the hospital and, um, you know, different, different staffing models or a different training of the staff. So we've kind of went in with this vision of, of developing a tool that could help physicians uh, better take care of these newborn babies. So that was, that was the first startup. I think, you know, there's always going to be a bit of insanity with starting a company. You know, I was an undergrad yeah. with no experience in medicine or medical device design, <laughs> but really inspired by a, a mission and a vision and, you know, put together a team and find the route partners to, to make something happen. And, and similar to this, you know, I, I have been working in the healthcare space, but I'm not a doctor and I'm not an AI developer, but, um, I think if you really have this vision of, of something you see wrong with the world and something you want to do to make the world better and are willing to dedicate 10 years of your life or so to do it and <laughs> go through all the ups and downs of a startup, like you can make it happen. Yeah. 
I love that. You're inspiring me right now. <laughs> um, so after you did your MBA, I believe it was right after you did your MBA, you did the founder in residence program through Antler. And I mm -hmm. am so interested in that. Um, we just started our innovation course um, this semester. So we have our pitch competition at the end of the fall. And so a lot of this is sort of new to me. Um, and so my understanding of Antler is that it's almost like an incubator um, where it gives you the infrastructure to do exactly what you just mentioned you did in the MBA program, which was testing out your idea, practicing pitching it. But I am curious if there's also some funding involved in that. So love to hear more. Yeah, great question. So there's there's a lot of different accelerator programs that um, if you're a startup founder, you'll just get constant emails from people being like, apply to my accelerator program or my residency. And and so you have to be really strategic with, with your time and with your equity about which things you participate in. I think Antler is a really great program and they're super unique in that they they really take people from day one. So like their ideal candidate is somebody who's just graduated from school or wants to quit their job at Google or Apple and and has this idea for a company. And um, you go there and I think it's about six weeks and you spend six weeks working on it and testing and building and being fast and iterating and seeing where it goes, right? Seeing what kind of feedback you get from customers, seeing what kind of traction you get. And then at the end, you have the opportunity to pitch to their investment committee. Um, and you know, I, th I think the reason why their program is so groundbreaking is because most first funding for founders is going to be from your personal network. It's going to be from your, your friend or family member or, you know, professor or whoever, somebody you know. And so for people mm -hmm. who don't have established networks, it can be really difficult for them to raise that first dollar and, and have the money that they need to actually like, get the business off the ground. And so Antler does this um, by having this this residency be essentially their diligence period. So they spend that six weeks getting to know you, getting to know your startup idea, and then deciding if they want to invest in it. Um, and you have that opportunity as well to really get to know them as investors and see if you want them on your team, if they'd be good strategic partners for you. So it's a unique model that's different than like other accelerators. Um, and uh, we had a great time and <laughs> we still work out of their offices here in Boulder, Colorado. Wow, that is amazing. And so you you mentioned that you have to be um, basically in between. So either quit your job or just out of school so that you can focus on this 100%. And um, I'm assuming you live in Colorado, but um, and I noticed that they only have like four or five cities that they have. So do most most people are prepared to fully financially support themselves when they um, decide to do this? for those six weeks? Um, everyone has a kind of a different circumstance. So um, I think Antler has three locations in the US, New York, Austin, and Boulder. Um, they have you know, so many locations around the whole world. <laughs> They're a very global okay. company. Um, and I think they offer a stipend when you do the program. The, their terms changed about a month ago. So I, I, I don't know on the top of my head, but um, but I, I mean, I would definitely recommend having a safety net whenever you're going to start a company. Oh, we yeah. should have yeah. some savings because, <laughs> you know, realistically, you're not going to be able to pay yourself for like one to two to three years. Um, right. So you know, being able to have that flexibility helps you so you're not rushed into making an, a decision about taking on a new investor or um, 
you know, that's the number one thing that kills startups is just running out of money. So, you know, in the early days when it's just your founding team, knowing your own personal runway for how long you can work on this before you have a salary is, is super essential. Yep. And how do they fit into the, since we're talking about money, um, do they, and you did mention their terms change and this might be different for everyone, but do they then take a percentage of equity or how to, or do you pay it them up front? Yeah, so you don't have to pay anything for the program, um, but if at the end of the program they decide to invest, then it's a, a it's a safe note investment, so equity in exchange okay. for. I think their new terms is two hundred fifty thousand dollars for, I think like seven percent, but don't don't quote me on okay. that. Um, <laughs> but we did the program and decided to not move forward to the investment committee, so we're not um, in their portfolio, but. Um, but, but that's a great thing is like, if you, if you do their program, you can still learn a lot. And you, again, you have that time to decide if, if they'd be the right investors for you. And ultimately we just decided healthcare is so unique that we needed more healthcare specific investors on our cap table who really understood the, the difficulties of selling into health systems and the timeline associated mm -hmm. with developing a, a health tech product. Okay. Very interesting. So You've mentioned your your long-term vision already for your company is expanding to other diagnoses. Um, what is your overall vision or mission statement? Well, that's a great question. I, I, I don't have a memorized <laughs> mission statement. Um, the, 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 like the tagline we've been using lately is turning patients into partners. And that's something I think mm -hmm. about a lot is, is this movement towards shared decision-making and how um, moving from this kind of patriarchal model of like the doctor is going to tell you what to do and that's what you do to patients being engaged and involved in making decisions about their health. Because, you know, ultimately there is a lot of choice involved in health, right? There are multiple treatment options that each have pros and cons and risks and the patient should be engaged in a part of of making those decisions and with how fragmented our healthcare system is right now it often falls on the patient to be that kind of center person in their healthcare and managing all these different providers and and taking in all this information so um we really think about how we can bridge the gap and build trust between patients and providers. So both empowering patients to advocate for themselves and decide what they want in their care, and then empowering physicians to, to communicate and engage their patients in those types of shared decision-making. Yeah, that is so needed. I, even today you still see the doc, I call it the doctor is God mentality, <laughs> but yes, very patriarchal. And it's definitely still very palpable in the healthcare system. And I'm loving this movement to more democratized healthcare and especially working with geriatrics. Um, I'm, I'm excited for the future of the younger generations because we are starting this movement now. And hopefully by the time we are over 65, the healthcare landscape looks a lot different than it does right now. So it does give me hope for the future. Um, any hopes that you have for the future of women's health or have we sort of already touched on, on that? I mean, there's so much. I think that... Right now, you see a lot of innovation, but it's very limited to um, 
to people who have money, right? It's, it's these, these solutions can be expensive. And if you have the resources, you can pay for, for better care and you can pay for these cool new tech solutions that will help you. So what I'm really passionate about is like for this becoming the standard of care, this becoming incorporated into government programs and into all insurance programs um, so that everybody has access to these types of tools. And I think that really comes from showing that these solutions don't just improve the experience for patients, but also make sense financially, right? So this is going to save time, save money, um, and, and reduce the overall cost of healthcare, which uh, takes time to, to collect that data and to prove that out. But I think when you do that, then you can make these solutions mainstream and expand the access that they have. Yeah. Oh, love that. It's so inspiring. Um, so just to end us off, any word, words of wisdom or cautionary tale that you'd like to share about your experience, specifically as a woman in business and leadership? <laughs> um, <laughs> Loaded question. <laughs> that, I mean, so many things. Um, you know, I, I, I think that so often when you take a leap into entrepreneurship, there's some naivete and uh, optimism and it's never as easy as you think it will be. And, you know, I look back at my journey and if I knew how hard it would be, I probably wouldn't have done it um, because it is so hard. It like, it's, it's soul crushing. It's late nights. It's just constantly like, it's the hardest thing you can ever do. But I think the reason why you do it is because the, 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 Imagining the world without what I'm trying to build is just like too depressing for me to live, right? Like, mm, like I, yeah. I cannot accept a world where we don't change this. So no matter what it takes, like I have to, I have to try. I have to at least try to to work on this problem. So I really say like, if you don't feel that strongly about the thing you're building, don't build it because startups are not yeah. easy. Um, but if you feel this burning passion that like this needs to exist in the world or this needs to change and I'm the person to do it and you're ready to to dedicate and work and and it's going to be a roller coaster um yeah. that that you can you can do it and I really do believe that anyone can if they have that that burning drive and the support um which is hard for female founders but the, yeah uh, reach yeah. out to me if you're a female founder and you need additional support i can connect you with some <laughs> of the communities there are great communities out there that's good to hear and thank you so much for sharing that um and if you ever need any clinician input, um, please let me know. Um, you know, I have a network of clinicians and, um, in terms of folks reaching you, um, I'm assuming going through your website is the easiest way if there are clinicians that are interested in implementing this in their practices. Yeah, definitely. On our website, there's a place where you can you can schedule a call with me, where I can walk you through our platform, and and even for you know a lot of clinicians are are going to be at some big hospital that's like I I don't have the power to implement this in my hospital, but I'm just personally interested in it, mm -hmm. and we love working with those physicians too. They can give us really great feedback as we're implementing new features and sometimes become advisors for us. So we love engaging with physicians who kind of have that same vision of, of the way they want to see patient care move and to improve diagnosis and uh, using these tools to improve patient care. Yeah. 
Well, Margaret, thank you so much. This has been great. And I am just sitting here thinking of all the people I know that are going to be able to take something from this. So I really appreciate everything that you shared and for giving me and us your time. And I wish you all the best. I'm so excited to, to see what you do and what this company does. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me and really excited to keep listening to your podcast. And again, you know, let's stay in touch. And if any listeners want to feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn or on our website. Okay, absolutely. Well, enjoy the rest of your evening. Thanks again. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Yep. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time.